This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. You know, there's a lot of judgment out there in the world these days. And of all the judgy noise around us, parenting criticism comes through loudly and clearly as a painful signal that manages to bring up all sorts of defensiveness and anger. Passing judgment on another parent, especially when the judgment is grounded in a philosophy of some kind, is a rude and noisy and even hostile thing to do. It's also one reason that some of us rarely do it in our face-to-face interactions, but that doesn't mean we're not thinking about it. And a lot of the time, what we are thinking, or another parent is thinking, has little to do, if anything, with what the latest research says. But science is useful. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about what science has to say about a number of crossroads that parents encounter, from vaccines to attachment parenting to circumcision and screen time. We're not going to be giving specific advice. After all, don't know every single one of you in all of your family situations, and we can't say which route would be best for you or your child. But we are going to give you the scientific information that you're going to need to map out your own path. And here and there, we're going to say what we've ended up doing, which may or may not have been terribly scientific at the time. We'll jump into the science and the art of parenting when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes I, my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Tara Haley, who is the co-author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Tara, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, I think you start off with a really interesting thing. It's actually not the first words of the book, but it's in there in the first chapter. So the plural of anecdote is not data, which kind of sets the table a little bit for your overall premise, which is that people are, are making big decisions based on stuff that they really shouldn't be making decisions on. Is that about right? Um, yeah, well, yes and no. It's not that they shouldn't be making decisions on them. It's just that when you make a decision based only on a story that you've heard somewhere or from your neighbor's friend and you apply that to your situation with the assumption that that's the right way to do something or that that's you know, a scary story that you should pay attention to, then you're not actually basing that decision on data that's been 
you know, reviewed in mass, you know, population-level data. And population-level data isn't necessarily going to tell you what to do either, but it gives you more reliable information which you can use to make the decisions for your family. Right, right. Well, so, so, but you're advocating more of a science, let's look at what's really going on on, on larger-scale samples and rather than just what your brother-in-law told you or, God exactly. forbid, or, you know, what, what you read on the Internet, which is the, the, exactly. the worst place to get information. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if it's on the internet, it's always true. We all know that. Absolutely, because it's on the internet. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what that's the synonym for truth, isn't it? Yeah. So l- let's talk about from the very beginning. There's a, a lot of stuff about pregnancy. What are some of the the myths, I guess, about pregnancy that people get wrong? Well, um, there's a lot of shoulds and shouldn't. You should drink this. You shouldn't drink that. You should eat this. You shouldn't eat that. And some of that is based on evidence. Some of that is based on old evidence that's no longer, uh, up, you know, hasn't been updated and is no longer relevant. And some of it is a little bit of an open question that we don't really have enough data on. So I think it's really important for people to understand where those recommendations come from. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Most women have heard they shouldn't ever eat soft cheese when they're pregnant. And I am an absolute lover of brie and camembert. So that was like a death sentence for me. <laughs> And it turns out that that comes from a huge listeria outbreak that happened in California almost 20 years ago or more, um, where um, a large Latina population was eating um, a type of cheese that was unpasteurized, and it was contaminated with listeria, and it was a big listeria outbreak, and it was, it was very tragic. It was a bad situation. And that's where that recommendation primarily came from. But the thing is, listeria is a really hardy bug, and we have since seen outbreaks of listeria in cantaloupe, in ice cream, and it's, it's very mm. common in uncooked meat. So listeria can be lurking almost anywhere, and it's impossible for you to make it nine months without eating anything that could ever have listeria in it. Whereas if you are eating soft cheese that's been pasteurized, your risk is no greater than if you're drinking pasteurized milk or you're, you're eating some fruit or anything else. Taking it a little bit to the side, because we're not talking about things you can eat, but cat litter, or not cat litter, but cat feces seems to be an issue also. And there's exactly. always all the always these warnings about you should, as the, the expectant father, you should be doing all the cat duty and stuff like that. And that that one, I, I've actually looked at that, and it just it's such a strange thing. I mean, your normal is. person is not going to be picking up cat poop with their hands and then rubbing their face with it. Uh, and, you know, the, and the thing that seems to be the bigger problem is actually gardening. Because exactly. it's just a yes. giant litter box <laughs> for cats anyway. I will admit that I'm not a gardener, and we do have cats. So I didn't fill my husband in on that evidence until after I gave birth. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, little confession there. But no, um, the, the fear there is toxoplasmosis, which is a parasite that does, does require a cat's digestive system to complete its life cycle. But once a cat has had it, it can never get it again. So you're really only concerned about very young kittens or, or cats that are, you know, have only been outside once and the first time they're outside, they usually get it from eating raw meat, like a bird or a mouse that they catch. So unless you, if you have a cat that's always indoors or a cat that's been around for a while and has probably had it at least once, it's not a problem. However, there are wild cats all over the place and in sandboxes and, you know, sand volleyball courts and gardening and all the other places that wild cats might use as their litter box, that actually has a higher risk because they're wild cats and they're having wild kittens and those wild kittens are eating, you know, wild mice and birds. So right, right. there is a risk of it, but it's not really a risk that you can 
terribly easily control unless you just don't garden during that time. And, and the cat litter is, unless you just got a brand new kitten who loves mice, it's probably mm-hmm. not an issue. Right, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other things that are going on a little bit later on in the pregnancy. There, just what about diet? And I mean, there's all this the various kinds of theories and studies that are contradictory, of course, that show that what the mother eats is going to affect what the child is going to be liking later on. How does that all work? We're still learning a lot about the taste preferences thing, and it's more likely that that there is some evidence for that in breastfeeding, but the evidence for during pregnancy is much, much, much weaker. Uh, I, I wouldn't put much on that at all. So um, I ate a variety of things, including lots of spicy foods with both of my kids, and their taste buds are very different. So it's, um, you know, that's anecdotal, of course, but we don't have a strong evidence on that. The most important thing in terms of diet is just that you're getting a pretty balanced diet and a healthy diet. The thing that's more likely to affect your child in utero is not so much the food itself as the weight that you're putting on with the food. Um, Excessive weight gain can have an impact, and that's also hard to tease apart from lifestyle factors once Mm -hmm. the baby's born, but that's going to play a bigger role than whether you have a particular type of food or not. Right. You know, I want to jump past the pregnancy stage, but I think because people are going to ask about this, what about alcohol? Yeah, I was waiting for it. Um, Well, you know, it's one of these things I almost didn't want to ask because, you know, there's going to be some people who are going to say moderation means different things for different people, but give us the, the science here. This is one of the trickiest ones. It is impossible to say precisely how a single glass of alcohol will affect a fetus, regardless of the stage of pregnancy, because we don't know what is happening in that fetus's brain or organ system at that precise moment that you drink it. I had several glasses of wine when I was pregnant with my second child, and having dove into that research as I have, I would not do the same again um, unless I had an extenuating circumstance, like I was just utterly stressed out beyond belief and a single glass of wine was going to calm me down, where the stress is probably a greater risk than the wine. Um, For the most part, we know that any exposure during the first trimester can have an impact, but it's not one of those things where if you have... If you had some before you found out you were pregnant, you don't. it's not something where you should be stressing out about it because the stress that you have then is more likely to have a greater impact. At the same time, alcohol is a neurotoxin, and it does go to the, through the placenta straight away. So if it goes in your body and your bloodstream, it does reach your child. What we don't know exactly is what it does when it gets there. And it, we, we know that it can cause cellular death, and we know that it can interfere with cellular, uh, you know, um, Reputation, mm-hmm. um, division, cellular division. But, you know, it, it, what if your your baby is taking a break from its growing at that moment and there's nothing special happening for that hour that you happen to have the alcohol? Well, there's not going to be an effect. And if there is an effect, it's almost certainly going to be so minor from a glass here or a glass there that there's not going to be any clinical effect. In other words, you're not going to know that you're not going to see like, oh, my child has one less IQ point than they would have had. And even if you did, you're not going to know that. So it's, it's, I, I never want to tell someone there's no risk because we know based on the chemical, you know, things that happen in the body, there is, there is some kind of risk. It's impossible to quantify, and we may never have the tools that can quantify it. So it's, I hate to give right. such a wishy-washy answer, but it's the clearest answer I can give. Based yeah. On the evidence well, I think that the bottom line of the whole thing is that it's a risk that you can control 100% by just not having any. So why take, why take the risk? If it's and not I, absolutely necessary. To an ex- 
Stan, I agree with that, but I also feel strongly that there are, I, I feel strongly that women have often been talked down to when it comes to that. There's sort of a paternalism in that. Not, not from you, I just mean in general. And I think women have the right to make the decision about what they're going to do. And if a woman tells me that she is just incredibly stressed that day, she's had a horrible, awful day, she's crying, she's depressed, she doesn't know what to do, and you know a single glass of wine is going to help her recenter herself, right. I'm not going to tell her that she's going to harm her baby by doing that because we don't know that. Right. And it may right. very well be that the calming, you know, maybe she just prevented preterm labor by stress, you know, not being so stressed out. True enough. So it's, yeah. it's, I think it's really important that women just are aware of it and then they make that decision based on what we do and don't know. Talking with Tara Haley, who's the author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Tara about what's going on in science and child-rearing. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop it, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. I'm four years old, and I'm the only one in my whole class that can tie his own shoes. My mom took me to the circus for my birthday. Half my friends already went, but now I've gone too. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. But I got five bucks yesterday, I believe. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Go to CasaFamilyDay.org, take the Family Day Pledge, and get tips on how to talk to your kids about drugs and alcohol. Have dinner with them often, and you can significantly lower their risk of substance abuse. Dinner makes a difference. A message from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Tara Haley, who's the co-author of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Wanted to skip ahead a little bit past the whole pregnancy thing and talk about some, some things that are also you know, likely to get people all riled up. The cloth versus disposable thing. What? Why is that even... What's the science there? Is there any science there? I mean, you talk about that in the book, and I'm just curious right. about how it happens it's, to it's, end up there because it seems to be not the most scientific of things. Well, and we, the reason we discuss that is it's one of those things that a lot of parents disagree over, and there's a lot of judgment around it. And one of our oh, goals yeah. of the book was to reduce that judgment. And um, in the case of cloth versus disposable diapers, the science that you can look at is more economic and environmental science. So 
neither of them is unless your child has an allergy to one of the fibers in a cloth diaper or one of the chemicals used to make the disposable diapers there's not really a health issue so much it's more so I mean, there's some people who argue that more rashes occur with one or the other and that tends to be too individualistic to each child to really say confidently so the question is really are you harming the environment more with one than the other and the science is pretty equivocal we don't have evidence that one of them is that much more superior to the other. Um, diapers definitely comprise a huge number of what's in landfill, but they do biodegrade eventually. At the same time, using cloth diapers uses a tremendous amount more water, and water is a pretty important resource that's limited as well. Um, so, And then you have to consider other factors that could influence those things, uh, such as economics and time and you know, is a mom who's working two jobs and doesn't have time to wash the, the uh, cloth diapers, is she really doing the best thing for her family and her child if she's stressing out over it so that she can sure. save the environment that day? So it's, we, we don't have evidence that one of those is truly superior to the other, and I think it's perfectly fine for people to rely on their own value system to make that decision. All right, so as long as we did the controversy thing, we have to talk about vaccines. Yes. So, which is another one of these things. It's, it's like a conversation about the death penalty or something. You're probably not going to convince people. Well, actually, hopefully you will convince people because I, I think that it's, uh, I think you, it gets I think to you be really... There's one small section you'll never convince, but I think a lot of people are open to hearing about the evidence. Well, what surprised me, actually, part of the reason I'm asking, because just a couple of weeks ago I read this thing about uh, Robert De Niro, and he, who runs a film festival in, in New York, Tribeca, and there was a documentary that was produced by none other than this guy Wakefield, who has been completely debunked over the years, and all about the vaccine thing all over again. And mm -hmm. that that film was supposed to be screened, and then they decided to pull it at the last minute, which I think is a good thing. But why why is this still out there? This business about vaccines causing autism or causing or killing people or, or you know the the various things that this guy faked the data on one thing to, that's important to realize is that when edward jenner first created the smallpox vaccine out of cowpox back in the 1700s people were afraid to get the smallpox vaccine because they thought it would turn them into cows <laughs> okay that's it well, i guess <laughs> that's that's a 21st century laugh right i mean exactly yeah, yeah, yeah there and you yet, go and yet, that was a very real fear then, and there's been many fears since then. So the anti-vaccine movement in general has been with us literally since the day a vaccine was invented. The question is what the culprit's going to be each time, and autism is the perfect culprit because it is a condition for which we, we don't understand the causes. It, it looks different to different people. It's a challenging condition and disability Um so there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of reasons that we would, it shows up right about the same time that you get your vaccines, meaning we, it's harder to, to discern the symptoms before one to two years old, which is right around the time that, that kids get their MMR vaccine. So it kind of have, has all of the, the perfect factors to be a culprit, you know, to be a scapegoat. Um, but then there's also the, the fears in general that when you are, you're injecting a syringe full of stuff that you don't understand into your tiny baby's healthy body. That's not how we usually think about medicine working. We usually think about medicine working as I'm sick and I'm going to go and get medicine for my child or my, my child's sick and I'm going to get medicine for my child and that's going to help them. You don't usually think about medicine as I have a healthy child and I'm going to give her medicine so that she doesn't get sick. So it goes against what our intuition is. 
so it's the fear is understandable. It's just a matter of trying to help parents get over the cognitive, you know, biases that will stop them from accepting what the data shows. Okay. And so your overall recommendation is listen to your pediatrician? Absolutely listen to your pediatrician and um, recognize that the benefits of the vaccine based on probably the largest consensus of evidence we have on any other issue than in parenting, <laughs> it's, it's definitely the, the biggest stack of studies, the, the benefits definitely outweigh the risk. That doesn't mean that there's no child that will have a risk, and it doesn't mean that your child might not have a special condition such as an immune condition, mm -hmm. which might warrant a, a medical exemption, which is why you should always talk to your pediatrician. But in terms of the aggregate, the benefits are much, much, much greater by orders of magnitude of the risk. Right. You, know, you mentioned that autism is something that we don't know what the causes are and you don't know how to prevent it exactly. And SIDS is another one of those things where people are not completely clear on what causes it. There, there's right. some suspicions. But so what is it that people can do? Because that, that's a reasonable fear that, I mean, you know, it's just Very a, much, a panic, yeah. a reason to panic, I think. Uh, but how do you tell people what, what they can do to minimize the risks, at least? Yeah. There's, what works? Well, the, most, the most important thing they can do is to ensure that babies are put down on their backs. Um, right. the, the biggest single risk factor, well, there, actually, there's two. The two biggest single risk factors are smoking during pregnancy, uh, much more so than smoking after pregnancy. It's specifically during pregnancy that's the bigger risk, and um, putting babies to sleep on their stomachs. So those two are far and away the biggest risk factors. After that, some of the protective things you can do, um, if you have chosen to breastfeed and or if you have the ability to breastfeed, breastfeeding does cut the risk of SIDS in half. It's not clear 100% that that's causal, but we think it is. We think it actually is something about the breast milk and the act of breastfeeding that is cutting that risk. Um, you can also give your baby a pacifier. Pacifiers actually reduce the risk. Making sure that the sleep environment is very safe, that there's no pillows or positioners or blankets or you know cute stuffed animals anything like that should not be in there and it should be a firm mattress not a, a soft and fluffy mattress right um so those are some of the, the most important things you can do now what about sharing a bed and that that's kind of come in favor and gone out of favor and i think currently the american academy of pediatrics says it's it's out of favor and part of the reason it seems is that they're worried that people are going to roll over their babies which it always strikes me when I'm teaching. I teach a class for expected fathers. Is you know, th think about the last time you fell out of bed when you were sleeping. It, it, it doesn't happen unless you're drunk or something like that. You're not going to roll right. over your baby. So, what what is the the safety factor or the science behind sleeping in the same bed with your baby? This is another really contentious one, and it's one of the ones where the way that we present the evidence may be found controversial by some of the public health officials. They're they're probably not going to like some of what we include in there. When you take into account all the different factors that can contribute to a safe sleeping environment, which is not smoking during pregnancy, not smoking after pregnancy, not using alcohol or any other kinds of you know, depressive drugs, um, you know, legal or illegal, um, making sure that your child is, not, uh, is on a firm mattress, making sure that your child has a, you know, no uh, blankets or anything around you, you're breastfeeding. When you put all those things together, the risk in co-sleeping of SIDS or of suffocation is almost flat with being in a crib. And I say almost because several studies will show that it's increased. The problem is that a lot of the studies that show it's increased have not accounted for all of those factors 
and they don't account for whether a person intended to fall asleep versus accidentally fell asleep. Oh, yeah. The difference yeah. being, of course, that if you accidentally fall asleep, you may not have set your child up in such a way as to ensure that, you know, the pillow is not going to be on their face or something. You know, we only have just one minute left. I just want you to just, what was the most surprising thing that you found as you were going through verifying the science on everything parenting? Um, I'm actually going to borrow from my co-author who has talked about this a lot. But, you know, together we noticed that there's virtually nothing on fathers. <laughs> fathers are, fathers are unfortunately very left out of the literature. A lot of the research focuses on moms, and the fathers kind of get the shaft on that, which is unfortunate because fathers play an increasingly important role. They've always played an important role, but I think in recent years with equality, it's, it's become more important, and I think we need more research into what fathers, you know, what role they play in children's lives, especially in infancy. Tara Haley is the co-author with Emily Willingham of The Informed Parent, a science-based resource for your child's first four years. Tara, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you very much. It kind of freaks me out that some people actually go through their trash to pull out recyclables. That's not for me. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. In your recycling bin? No, in my trash. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I don't even know what they do with recyclables. They make more of the things you use, Maria. More newspapers, more bottles and cans. Out of a bunch of trash? I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Recycling creates jobs and protects the environment. Is that important to you? It is, which is why I put my trash where it belongs. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. See why recycling is not rubbish. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Time to talk some toys here. If you're looking for some fun new video games, your search is pretty much over. Here's what we're playing with right now. All of these games are great picks for kids of all ages, and they are available at the Nintendo eShop. Pokemon Super Mystery Dungeon for Nintendo 3DS. In many Pokemon games, you play as a trainer. That's a human who trains and cares for the Pokemon. But there's also an RPG series where you play as a Pokemon, exploring, battling, and earning treasure. The most recent game in that series is Pokemon Super Mystery Dungeon. You pick your character and a Pokemon friend, and you're transformed into a young Pokemon who must explore dungeons to help solve a major crisis, which is that Pokemon are being turned into stone. Throughout Mystery Dungeon, you can meet 720 known Pokemon. That's all of them, even the rare ones. Wonder Mail players can receive special items via their QR codes. This game is available now for $39.99 in the eShop or at your favorite retailer. Fire Emblem Fates. Here's a little something for the dads. Fire Emblem is the long-running RPG series, which now includes more than 15 games, and has tactical movements on a grid environment. Each environment has a variety of obstacles and story elements from dragon veins to deep canyons. The most striking element of this game, though, is the storyline, which starts out as many RPG role-play game games do, which is it's got a lost main character who's just trying to fit in. Your first decision, then, is whether to stay with the family that raised you, side with your biological family, or choose neither. Each choice triggers a different path, which takes your player on some really interesting adventures and situations. 
Fire Emblem Fate Birthright and Fire Emblem Fate Conquest both retail for $39.95, or there's a three-game special edition set for $79.95. The Mario and Luigi Paper Jam for Nintendo 3DS. Mario and the crew are back for a brand new adventure that pairs the three-dimensional Mario with his paper version. The action in this game is played out in role-playing style, where players take turns attacking with various skills to defeat their enemy. The battles are action-based rather than having to wait for your next turn. The funny dialogue and silly interactions make this game fun for both younger players and those with more experience. Be warned, though, once you start playing this thing, you're not going to want to stop. Mario and Luigi Paper Jam retails for $30.99 at both the eShop and retail locations. Mario Tennis Ultra Smash for the Wii U. Mario Tennis has been an evolving franchise since the Nintendo 64, and with each iteration, the graphics get slicker and the gameplay tighter, with plenty of new bells and whistles every time. The most prominent addition to the Ultra Smash is the Mega Mushroom, which makes your character explode to triple your original size, which can be a blessing or a curse depending on your skill level. A total of 16 characters are available in Ultra Smash, some of which you unlock by completing specific tasks. The game also lets you level up your Ambios, improving their status and giving them new skills. Retails for $49.99 at the eShop or wherever you buy your games. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Until next week, I'm Armin Broad. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.